So the topic for today is insight. The word that's usually, uh, Pali word that's usually translated as insight is vipassana. So we do insight meditation or vipassana meditation. And the idea of insight comes to the forefront in the Satipatthana Sutta in what's called the refrain. And there's a series of practices that are described. And after each practice, there's a refrain, which is pretty much the same for each one, except they change one word depending on what practice they're doing. And um, these refrain, the refrain emphasizes the insight, among other things. So the word vipassana uh, has the word sight in it, or to see. And the vi part of vipassana is a word of emphasis, strength. So to see strongly or to see clearly. And so in English we have the word insight. The prefix is a little different. But um, I kind of think it's kind of cute that it sounds like inside. So there's a kind of way of we're having insight to what's inside. Inside of what? I like to think of it that, that we often wrap our experience, wrap the world, with our ideas and our concepts, our stories, our beliefs. And so because of this wrapping, we often don't see what's inside, what's more essential or what's, you know, in some sense, in some deeper way in which what's really going on here. And part of this process of in insight meditation is slowly letting these wrappings fall away. And, um, and as we do so, even the concept of inside and outside is just more wrapping. And so initially we can talk about going inside perhaps, but then that falls away too. And um, so to develop insight, to really see deeply or see something very clearly is one of the tasks of the Satipatthana Sutta. And the vehicle or the means to that is to establish awareness. If we can have awareness well established, then it's possible for that awareness to see what's happening in a different way than when awareness is not established. When awareness is not established, when we're not centered and grounded in being present and being aware, it's most likely because we're spinning. We're chasing after thoughts, ideas. They're chasing after us. We have swirls of emotions that, you know, are moving through us in a big way, perhaps, or small ways. And so in that involvement with thoughts, ideas, future, past, involvement with desires and aversions, the involvement with emotions that go through, the awareness 
uh, sometimes is lost or is recedes into the background, or the awareness is scattered or unstable. We can be here a little bit, then we're not here. We kind of recoil or we veer off or we get sidetracked easily. But to have our capacity to be aware, to be stable, stabilized, present here is a great gift. And it allows us to begin to see more clearly in a way that we can't when, you know, we're spinning. So, I, as you know, some of you know, I like the analogy of looking through a telescope. If you're riding on the roof of a train with a teles long telescope in your hand and you're trying to look at the moon, you're not going to see it very well. If you put the telescope on a tripod, it's a little bit more stable. Maybe you can kind of get closer to the moon, but the train is vibrating. But if you can put the tripod on solid ground, then it stays relatively still, so then you can hold the telescope and look at the moon. And then you can see more clearly what's there. And so uh, the ability to stabilize or settle or abide in awareness is a quite powerful thing. And, um, and I also like to think of vipassana practice as a journey. And it's in uh, many ways, Buddhist practice can be seen as a wonderful journey from A to B. So we're kind of, in a sense, going somewhere, but the place we're going is to here. We're not trying to go someplace else, but we're trying to arrive where we already are at. We're here. And uh, in a sense, to take this journey thing upside, turn the idea upside down, and uh, it's kind of like we're coming to the end of the journey. It's a journey to end the journey, because a journey most of us are on are, is a journey of anxiety or fear or craving or greed or the journey to try to prove ourselves or defend ourselves or to you know, we have all these ideas and concepts. We're racing into an unknown future with our plans and hopes, or we're resisting the change that's coming, or we're kind of traveled back into time and reviewing the past over and over again. We're always moving, in a sense. We're always on a journey. And so how do we bring that journey temporarily to a certain kind of wonderful end? the journey home, or the journey here. So it's not to get anything or attain anything in a sense, but to really arrive here with stable awareness, settled here. And, um, and so this practice can be seen, if you'd like, it's maybe a metaphor, but of a journey in this regard. In the Satipatthana Sutta, there are four ways of establishing awareness, that's four general categories of ways. There's the body, there's the feelings, feeling tones, there's the mind states, and there's a particular uh, list of mental, mental activities that go on. And one way of looking at these four is it's going from what's more a coarser activity to a more refined activity. 
Generally, it's easier for humans to be aware of big movements than it is for fine movements, big events rather than kind of subtle events. So first, you know, you, it's maybe easier to notice your body. That's the kind of, I think, the theory here. So that you start by being establishing some awareness in your physical experience. This particular text begins with breathing. And then um, Andrea talked a little bit about the clear comprehension of the movements of the body that we go through our lives. We start becoming aware of the sensations that exist in our body. Needs to be louder now? Let's see if that's enough. Is that better now? Okay. So the feeling tones uh, are then they're a little more subtle, though some people would argue they're not. But the idea is they're a little more subtle. And then, uh, and then more subtle than that is the mind states that we have. And then more subtle is the how the activities of the mind operate within those mind states. And uh, I like to think of it as a journey inside, inward, to what's most core within us. And the last one, the mental activities, have to do with the core mental ac actions, activities of the mind, that either keep us imprisoned in greed, hate, and delusion, caught up in the hindrances, or those that uh, help us to become free, that arise as we become freer. So the heart opened up and no longer constricted. There's these other, these wonderful mental states, activities, that uh, qualities that come to the forefront. And those are most intimate, closest in. So at least for me, it, I, I find it comforting in this idea of a journey inward to that which is most inward and most kind of essential within where we find freedom. And, um, but it's really a journey that also just to arrive here and in being here in a full way, established with awareness here, to discover how to be at peace, how to overcome the sense of conflict that we can have with the world and with ourselves, how to be um, free, discover a capacity for the heart to be free, and a capacity to be happy, that's a, a stable happiness, kind of a, some kind of qualitatively different kind of happiness than the happiness of, I don't know, winning the lottery or something. And, um, and also discovering our c capacity for compassion that dwells from within as well. So to um, this journey, and we establish awareness, and just establishing awareness is quite satisfying. But it, in this path of the establish of mindfulness, um, it comes to having insight. And there's a variety of insights, but the core one is uh, insight into the changing nature of phenomena. And I intentionally avoided using the word impermanence, which many people associate with this as a core insight 
uh, of vipassana, the core insight of the kind of practice we do. And the reason to avoid the word insight, uh, impermanence is that uh, I've been told in recent times that for some people the word impermanence is uh, a really big word. And it kind of means, for some people, the interpret means, this is not going to last. It's going to be over. Uh, we're impermanent because we're going to die. And uh, so impermanence can have this very heavy feeling. If we say that everything's impermanence, oh yeah, everything's going and gone, gone, and that's it. So, uh, but it turns out that the Pali word that we translate as impermanence seems to uh, more, uh, more literally mean inconstant or n- uh, not continuous. And so we know that the days and nights that we experience during here in our lives are inconstant. There's days come, night comes, day comes, day goes, night comes. But it's not continuously day, it's not continuously night, but there's a discontinuity. Days and nights are not impermanent in the sense that, that today is the last day and, you know, better enjoy it because it's, it's you know, we're not going to have it again. Um, it's, um, but it's something that's uh, coming and going. Some people like the language of arising and passing. So this is inconstancy. Of course, some things are impermanent in the sense that they come to an end and they don't reappear again. Um, but that's not the, and that certainly, there's a lot of wisdom to be discovered in that. And it's a valuable thing to come to terms with. And it's also, um, but the core insight that seems to be emphasized over and over again by the Buddha is that of things, the inconstancy of phenomena. And in, uh, so in looking at inconstancy, we don't, we're not looking at it, when awareness is settled and stable, what it means is we're not chasing concepts and ideas anymore. We're not chasing the stories or not being, being chased by them or being caught in them, ideas. We're not uh, kind of conceptualizing or abstr- abstracting what's going on or interpreting what's happening. And so if we're not overlaying a wrapping of interpretations, what is it the experience, what's the, what the experience we're having, what is it in and of itself? Prior to the interpretation, prior to the ideas we overlay on top of them, the projections we have on them, a, lo- a tremendous amount of what we see in the world, we see through the filter of our projections on them. And one of the first times I clearly saw this was um, I had never been to the Tassajara Monastery and deep in the Santa Cruz Mountains south south of, or in Santa Cruz, Los Padres National um, Mountains south of here. And, um, And I'd never seen some of these big oak trees that you see driving in there, some of the oak trees there in the trees and and after I was there for about a month, 
I would look at these trees and I'd have this very clear sense that I was painting tree on top of the tree. Strange idea, right? I had the, I, I was very clearly, I had a concept of the tree and I was seeing the tree kind of, but I also had this mental activity going on in my mind of kind of seeing it as a tree and putting tree on top of the tree. And it wasn't the tree exactly I was seeing, I was seeing my idea of the tree. It was accurate enough this time. But it turns out that occasionally, once in a great while maybe, uh, I'll admit, I'll run into a person and my ability to have this projection, this idea, interpretation of the person, that overlay that I see the person through, isn't quite accurate. It's kind of, you know, kind of miss them. I kind of, <clears throat> once upon a time they <clears throat> irritated me. <clears throat> so now they're the irritating person, once and for all. That's permanent. Some things are not impermanent, but <laughs> if I've been hurt, if I've been hurt, it'll be, you know, that'll stick. And so I'm seeing them through my hurt, seeing them through my ideas, and I don't, I don't free them from my ideas. I mean, they've long since changed, and I'm still hanging on to who they were, who I thought think they were, so the idea. We go down to... I've gone this, gone down to meals during retreats, and I felt how I could feel or see how much I'm looking at the food through all kinds of ideas that I have about food and preferences and needs and all kinds of things. It might be necessary to have those thoughts. It's not wrong to do it. But it's a hugely different thing to look at the food and just see it as food or just see it as color and things, and see that the ideas, the projections, the concerns, the filter through which we see them are just that. Because I know from my experience, it's very easy not to see the difference between those two and to entangle reality with my ideas of reality. And when we're in the ideas and concepts our minds are working. It's a working mind. You don't have, uh, it's not, it's not an energy, it takes energy, mental energy, to have a thought. It's not a lot of energy, but it, it depends on the kind of thought you have. As we know, if there are a lot of stressful thinking going on and really preoccupied, it can be exhausting. Other thoughts, in contrast, can feel very relaxing to have, but there's still a little bit of effort involved. Interpretations are efforts. Ideas of the past and the future are a certain kind of effort. We don't recognize that effort, usually, in ordinary life, and we don't often don't let it kind of put to rest that kind of efforting. But it's that kind of efforting that keeps us 
in a, often, sometimes in a virtual reality of ideas and concepts, if we're spending a lot of time thinking about the past, it's a kind of a virtual reality. If we're into the imaginary future of what's going to come and our projections in the future, it is a kind of virtual reality and it takes effort and energy to be involved in that. It might not feel like there's effort and energy because it seems completely natural to drift off and slip into those thoughts. In fact, it can feel like where the work is to stay present. It's actually easier to let just drift off. But as the mind quiets down, gets stiller, at some point we see that it's actually work to do those things. And it's actually less work, more peaceful, to just abide in awareness. And this movement, this journey, from more activity to more peaceful activity to maybe almost no activity, is another way of talking about the journey of this practice. And it's a natural movement. If you spend a lot of time running, maybe you love running, and you're out for a run and it feels great for 20 minutes to 40 minutes, maybe unless you're a marathon runner. This is getting a lot of work. After 13 hours of running, like you're like, it's finally, you get a chance to sit down. It feels so good to, no, you, you start walking. And uh, walking is so much better now. I was so tired running. And now I'm sold on walking. I'm going to make a whole philosophy of how it's important to just walk, you know, and champion walking. So after 26 hours of walking, however long, you're ready to sit down. Ah, this is good. And then you have a religion about sitting. <laughs> but then after sitting for a long time, like you need to lay down. So finally you lay down. This is good. So it's kind of a, you know, kind of a natural, you know, people have this pattern of going from more activity to less and in a certain way. So the same thing with the mind. And it's one of the discoveries of people on retreat sometimes is how tired, weary their minds are. The mind that's been going on and on and on. And the preoccupied, busy mind camouflages itself from us. So we don't see what it's like for us, what it's really like to be so busy and churning away. We don't see how tired the mind is. And it's one of the reasons some people get really tired on retreat is because not they get tired, but they realize how weary they are from whatever they keep spinning and doing and doing for a lifetime. So this movement, this journey to resting, being, abiding, allowing this thinking mind to come to rest, not being so quick to judge, react, not be so quick to have interpretations and ideas, no longer seduced into the past and the future or into fantasy, eventually can feel like one of the most restful, intimate, settled, satisfying places to be. 
because and you can feel very clearly that the, the movement back into these thoughts and ideas is just more work. You know, just that you lose, you actually, we actually lose something that feels very satisfying and nice to be here. And one of the functions of having the stable awareness, abiding in awareness, which is not so busy, fragmented and caught up, is the stability of mind allows us to see change. It's in some ways, in a very deep moment-by-moment -moment way, it's hard to see change if we're living in the world of our concepts and ideas. Concepts have a, have a, lend themselves to being fixed. Like if I'm irritated with someone, I could hold on to that irritation in a fixed way. And that's how I see them. That's just who they are. And I don't notice that actually the person is constantly changing in all kinds of ways. And, and, um, and maybe if I really want to know the person, I better put aside my judgment and allow myself to see the changing, flowing nature of the person, how they are. So the same thing with us. If we really want to know ourselves well, it helps if we can also put aside the judgments, the criticisms, the reactions, the interpretations, even the uh, some of the identities and roles that we have, that we see upon ourselves, and allow ourselves to just notice the constantly changing nature of how we are, and the flow and change and what goes on. I struggled on retreat. I did a very long, a long retreat once, eight months, and one of the monsters that I had to, demons that I had to contend with, was uh, being sleepy. And my, the sleepiness was innocent enough. I mean, it was, you know, poor sleepiness. I had to deal with me fighting it. Um, but the real demon was my judgments about and expectations about being sleepy and how I had to be different than how I was. And, and, um, and uh, every afternoon I would get sleepy. And every afternoon I had this bitter, painful war. I can give you gory war stories but I'm going to spare you. They were pretty bad. Lots of blood. The, um, it was, I, I, I had a great capacity for that to struggle. And um, one day, after I don't know how many months, I think maybe it was three or four months of doing this every day, you know, by three o'clock in the afternoon I was getting sleepy. I dawned on me, you know, Gil, you've been up since two o'clock in the morning. <laughs> I, I think it's normal to start getting sleepy then. And, um, and I thought, oh. And then also I was only getting like four, four and a half hours a night of sleep in the monastery. I said, Gil, this is like natural to be sleepy. And then, I became much more relaxed about being sleepy. And then I started noticing that sleepiness came and it went. And it got fascinating to sit quietly and watch the first little inkling of being sleepy arise for the day. And I got kind of like, you know, delighted. 
And I just look forward to, kind of like, am I going to catch it today? I'm going to notice the first little inkling, first little kind of way my eyes changed, and first little thing that told me sleepiness would come. And, and then, I would, oh, there it is. And, it, and then it would change, and it would come more and more. And I got so much more relaxed about it, and it became just something that came, and it went. And, and, um, and you know, it, so some of it was not pleasant, but pleasantness came and went. And after a while, without particular unpleasantness, I started to appreciate here's the, it's coming and going as well. As I was able to rest back and not be in a reactive mode, what became clear and more interesting was how so many things come and go, come and go. And as we see them come and go, we start maybe developing a different relationship to things that come and go. I used to be somewhat neurotic around food and eating. And uh, uh, this is something that was kind of healed for me in living in monasteries and living on, and you know, doing retreats a lot. Because it seems like we were, the meals were always coming. Breakfast would come, breakfast would go. Lunch would come, lunch would go. Supper would come, supper would go. And it took a while, but after a while, like, I kind of started having some confidence that, you know, it would keep reappearing, <laughs> these meals. <laughs> and, uh, and sometimes on retreats, it, I felt like, you know, the only thing we ever do is eat. <laughs> you know, are we going again? And so this arising and passing, and, and after a while, um, seeing it coming and going, the inconstancy of it, I started to relax. I started to not be so neurotic about it, and so needing, and so afraid that all these feelings that I had in relationship to food, it comes and it goes. And so it wasn't so much, you know, figuring out the details of the food, the details of my psychology, it was something about simply seeing it coming and going that was so helpful. The arising and passing of things. The more we can abide and settle in, the core insight of insight meditation is this arising and passing of phenomena at whatever scale that we can see. Days come, days go. Uh, meals come, meals go. Sleepiness comes, sleepiness goes. Breathing comes, breathing goes. Pain comes, pain goes. Emotions come, emotions go. One of the little problems I had with difficulties in med meditation, where there was sometimes physical pain or emotional pain, was um, I would sit sometimes, kind of like a, maybe like a hawk looking for a prey or a cat at the mouse door or something, waiting for this impermanence thing to work. <laughs> you know, I, I felt like I had to watch it go away, like I was watching it, waiting for it to go away, whatever it was, waiting for it to go, praying for impermanence. And, uh, 
and then so many times, the sitting would end and it didn't go away and I'd go out to a meal or go out for walking or do something else. And then I'd come back and it was gone. Where did it go? I didn't see it, I didn't see it go away. And that helped me to give up this quest to see things, you know, things I didn't like go away. I just kind of accept them, just be with them, just do the mindfulness, be present. Sometimes you see the arising, sometimes the passing, sometimes you see the arising and you don't see the passing, but it passes. Sometimes you don't see the arising, just there. So in this uh, refrain, part of the sutta, in terms of impermanence and constancy, it says that one abides observing the arising of phenomena in the body or arising of the feelings, or arising of the mental states, or arising of these mental qualities, like arising of the hindrances and things. And then it says, one observes the passing of these things. And then it says, one observes the arising and the passing. And I kind of see this as part of a journey. Sometimes as we get quieter, what's easier to see is that things arise. Here they come, it's coming arising. And we could see arising without seeing necessarily ceasing, the passing of something. Sometimes what's clear is just to notice that things are passing. Sometimes just passing happens, passing, things just disappearing. And sometimes we see both, the rising and passing, the rising and passing of things. And it can be, the, and the more settled we are, the more we arrived here, present, and the less we're thinking about things, the less that we're searching for impermanence and just allowing reality to show itself, the more and more the subtlety or of change we notice or say it differently, perhaps, uh, the more we notice the, the, um, um, kind of the building blocks of the world that we live in, we see the kind of the, the root of it or the basis upon which it's all built, which is uh, the moment-to-moment -moment experiences of our senses. We hear a sound, a taste, a sight, a smell, a touch. And the sixth sense in Buddhism is, is the, the ability to sense, or see, or perceive what goes on in the mind, our inner life. In a sense, that's all there really is is experiences of sight, experiences of hearing, experiences of smelling, of tasting, of touch, and of, um, of, uh, of the mind. There's a way, there's a, 
if we really kind of settle in and don't overlay concepts and ideas, stories and drifting onto our experience, the coming home is in the immediacy of our senses and experience. And sometimes this becomes, one way this becomes clear on retreat for some people is that uh, objects in the retreat center start kind of standing out in highlight, like someone drops a little tea, tea bag, a tea wrapper bag on the floor and stand there and just like, wow, <laughs> look at that. And you pick it up and wow, <laughs> look at that, it's red and it's Look how it's crinkled, and it's just like, wow, just study it. And it's just like, whew. or maybe not tea bags, but, but, but maybe flowers going out in the garden. It just seems more vivid than usual. We're kind of living much more in our senses. Some people say they smell more in retreats than usual. Some people taste more fully. But there's a tendency to kind of, the, the, the sensory world starts becoming clear because we're not so caught up in thoughts and ideas and concepts. And so it, the, the concepts we have of the world, in a sense, have their foundation, their origin, if, it, if they have anything to do with reality, with the reality we experience or have experienced. And so we're coming back to reality, coming back to the, where it all begins where all these concepts and stories and ideas, where they get, where the data, the sense data comes in with which we build our concepts. And we're coming back more and more and just watching. And then th that, at that level, there's a whole different kind of seeing arising and passing. That's not like day and night or lunch, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, but there was just a cough. That cough came and went. That was pretty quick. We hear the traffic sometimes. And we can hear the car go by, but if you're very attentive, you can hear that in, in the sound itself, there's kind of a vibration that kind of goes on and off or oscillates. Or, feeling pain in the body. It's fascinating to be able to experience pain without an interpretation, a projection overlaying it, of the fear that we have in relationship to it, the, um, the projection into the future, what it means, what's going to happen. Um, even just the idea, of, the idea of pain is enough to make it hurt more. Even more complicated idea is it's my pain. You might try sometime when you're having a nice pain and tell yourself, call it the pain, and then call it my pain. And some people find that as soon as they add the word my, it's harder. But just the, it's a little bit easier. But, um, but to really go in and be, if, if it seems appropriate, this is not supposed to be some kind of macosism, you know, some kind of self-inflicted masochism. But it's fascinating to go and experience pain and see if you can do it without any filter of ideas, 
stories, reactions, to see if you can experience it in and of itself, like it's as if it has complete permission to be there, and to get close, close to it, kind of, or feel it, or savor it, or I don't know if that's the right word for pain. But, um, and then start seeing it's not solid. It's actually a dance of little sensations that are, they might be intense sensations, but they come and go. And in the little square centimeter where the pain is, when we had the idea of pain, it was solid, unchanging. But without the idea and kind of really getting fine-tuned, <clears throat> it's a, a kaleidoscope or a dance of pulling and stabbing and heat and tightness and all these things that c come into existence for a moment <clears throat> and pass away and another one immediately follows and they move around and in that little square centimeter. It's fascinating. The breathing, if you're tuning into the breath, there also, <clears throat> certainly you can feel the coming and going of the in-breath, coming and going of the out-breath, but each in-breath is made up of a whole series of different sensations that in the moment kind of ripple through, arise and pass, arise and pass. So the Satipatthana Sutta, <clears throat> this text, points to abiding in awareness, coming to a place where there's not a lot of work, not a lot of me operating, a me that I have to do and I have to accomplish, I have to get. But kind of this kind of blessed place of just allowing ourselves just to be and rest in awareness and be with what is. It's not an easy journey to get to that place. But it is not, the point is not necessarily just to be there, but it allows something to reveal itself. And we start seeing how there's actually constant change and movement. Things are impermanent and things are coming and going. And what happens to us when we start seeing how inconstant phenomena is, the coming and going of it? A number of things can happen. <clears throat> One is that it can be disorienting because we're used to finding our way and being safe and making our life <clears throat> with the concepts and ideas that we have. The idea of who I am and who other people are and my needs, my wants, my values, my beliefs, my whatever it might be. And it can feel a little odd not to have those operating. It could also be a great relief <clears throat> because so sometimes all those things that are operating uh, are stressful to have. And it can be such like wonderful vacation to, for a little while, temporarily, have put all that aside in favor of just abiding here, taking the risk taking the chance to, to try out. Just rest here in awareness. Just allow yourself to be here. No need to be involved so much in the past. 
No need to make plans. No need to judge yourself. No need to judge what's happening to you. No need to be for or against anything. But here, with this, it's a little bit, it takes a little bit of risk to put down what we've been carrying for a lifetime. But it, it can be a tremendous relief. But the core function of this seeing, arising, and passing, as I understand it, it helps us to begin to uncling. And the clinging that we have to phenomena, I think of it as like uh, this uh, plastic wrap kind of cling. Not necessarily always that we grab it like a hand clinging to something, but it's kind of sometimes like the, that plastic is stuck, you know, and, and so, but when things move and change and flow, we see the difference between that the, the clinging to ideas, clinging to the concepts, clinging to the stories, doesn't make sense, doesn't quite work. It turns out that most of the things we cling to, believe it or not, don't exist. There's many ways of understanding that. But what we don't cling to the things, we cling to the ideas of the things. So I'm, you know, uh, I really, you know, have a lot of attachment and clinging to, I think, I'm just making it up, to be honest. But this, this water bottle here, this is, I'm really attached to that. Okay. I'm not attached to the bottle. I'm attached to the fact that I get to have a bigger bottle than they do. <laughs> I think the bigger the bottle, <laughs> you know, the better, you know, the more status, the more you'll appreciate, the more you think I'm special and wonderful and you'll want to be my friend and, you know, I'm not attached to the bottle. I'm attached to all the things the bottle means. Do those things, all those things that they mean, does that really exist? It doesn't exist, this does not exist the same way as the bottle exists. But even if I say I'm attached to the bottle and I'm not holding it, I'm, at, I'm still attached to my idea of the bottle, the mental movement of holding. But if we kind of can really be in the rising and passing, including the rising and passing of thought, to see it even as a thought arises and passes, of feelings, they have this feelings, even though they're kind of, kind of, they, they, they don't, they, they're, they arise and pass, but they're arising and passing continuously. There's gaps. And it shows us how much we are relating to ideas and concepts, and where we cling to it, and that we're not really, can't, it's kind of like trying to, like I'm going to grab the air, like nothing's there to grab. 
kind of an amazing phenomena. And that's one of the things that can come out of being with the arising and passing of phenomena. Thoughts, these concepts, the idea of me comes and goes. And one of the great questions I, f I found for myself is the question, trying to appreciate the gaps that the thought arise and pass, an idea is there and then it's not there. Who are you in between your thoughts? Who are you when you ha can't use thoughts to answer the question? When I first encountered this question, my mind stopped. <laughs> and I felt freer. Because I knew I hadn't disappeared. I knew that I was kind of was here in some kind of way. But I didn't have to explain that. I didn't have to have a word for it. And in that gap, there was no attachment. There was freedom. It I, th I think that the part of our life that we cling to, that we hold on to, that we're caught up in, is a very small percentage of our life. And we limit ourselves by our attachments, by the clingings we have, the things we resist, things we're preoccupied with. And part of the benefit of letting go is to unleash, open up to a much bigger world to live in, much bigger, if I can use the concept to something that shouldn't be a concept, bigger sense of self. So the other night I talked about, the day I talked about the boats down the river, I'll end this talk with a story from Chinese, uh, kind of a Chinese John Zen story. And I, you know, it goes something like this. Seems there was a psychic who could read people's minds. And apparently the psychic had great ability to read minds. People, wow, you just, you just know exactly what I'm thinking. What I'm concerned with. How can, you, how can you know that? So one day, the psychic was walking along the river. And in the story, they say the river, there were these boats going up and down the river. And um, walking up the you know, opposite direction on the riverside was the local Zen master. And um, so they stopped and talked and the psychic was going to read the Zen master's mind. What's in there? And the psychic was, got confused, got disoriented, got, you know, couldn't understand what was going on. Because when he looked into the psychic, to the Zen master's mind, what he saw was the river flowing 
with the boats in it. The river they were standing next to, the boats they were going up and down. The Zen master was not caught up in his or her preoccupations, attachments, the future, the past. For those moments there, the Zen master was just there, fully there for the experience of the moment as it was being. And there was no the usual ways in which human, pe human beings identify themselves, make themselves, construct themselves, operating. Maybe the Zen master was abiding in awareness, just there. And the river flows. The boats flow by. Boats come, boats go. If you sit long enough, you start to dawn on you, dawns on you. Thoughts come, thoughts go. I've had the same story, I've reviewed the same event 10,000 times. It's Here it comes. <laughs> It'll go. I won't get on. Here comes this. My old friend is back. It'll come. It'll go. And you'll have the wisdom of seeing in impermanence. The wisdom of seeing just comes and goes. And you don't have to get on the boats. And to abide in awareness without getting on the boat, seeing everything just flowing, life flowing and moving, hopefully will help you to keep freeing that good heart of yours, opening, relaxing, just being, being here with this experience to let go. To see impermanence, to be impermanence, to become the arising and passing of phenomena. This is the core insight of insight meditation, the inconstant nature of phenomena. And it doesn't work so much to now make a homework out of it and go look it up, start s straining to see how things are coming and going. But it's more like settle back, allow yourself to be here, abide in awareness, be present, don't get on the boats, and in due time, the inconstant nature of our experience will reveal itself to you. And hopefully you can make yourself a receptacle 
to receive the arising and passing of this wonderful life as it flows through us. Thank you.